Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness. Uh, that is, it's literally our battle cry, is that we, we labor on, we follow you, we trust you, we're trying to go forward according to your word as best we know how, yet with all of our might, we know that it is not us, but it is Christ in us. By the grace of God, we are what we are this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would walk out of these doors this morning knowing more fully that your grace is sufficient for us, that your grace is enough, that what Jesus accomplished was enough, and that we would leave here in the security and in the comfort and in the hope and in the joy and with the, armed with a sober mindset that, yes, we got to do battle, but at the same time, the battle's already been won. Thank you so much, Jesus, for all that you are. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning, good to see you guys. Grab your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 8. It's where we'll be this morning. Um, I will read verses 15 through 17. It's kind of where we had planned to be at today, but I'm going to go back and pick up verses 13 and 14 as well too once we, once we get into it. But let me just read Romans chapter 8 in just three verses, beautiful verses, absolutely beautiful verses, um, describing more uh, aspects of our unbelievable salvation and redemption that we have in Christ. But Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Pray with me one more time. God, as always, we just read your word, and then we say, help, 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 help us. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. In 1998, there was a fairly well-known film uh, that came out called Saving Private Ryan. Uh, the story is built around a company of soldiers who were tasked with finding one American soldier known as Private James Ryan uh, in the midst of thousands upon thousands of other American troops somewhere in, wor- in Europe during World War II. The reason they are tasked with finding him is because he had three other brothers who had all been killed in battle, and he is now the only living son of his widowed mother. And while the movie was made famous for many of the choreographed battle scenes, the real kind of tension that exists in the film are the two identities that arise of this one soldier named Private Ryan, um, who would have been indistinguishable and in many ways somewhat unimportant Uh, from the thousands of other uh, soldiers in the battle, but was now at the center of the attention of the United States military because another identity had arisen to the surface. Again, the one identity being that of a soldier, like all the other men who were risking their lives to save him and bring him home, but the other identity that had arisen was that of a son who was dearly loved and is now the only child of his grieving mother, And the movie kind of brings us into this tension 
and that both of these identities need to be acknowledged because, because they both exist. And I share that this morning to, to say this, um, is that in our fight and our battle against sin, we fight and we battle not as unknown soldiers on some distant battlefield, but we fight as dearly loved sons that are intimately known by our Father. I want to say that again. We fight our battle against sin not as unknown soldiers on some distant battlefield, but as dearly loved sons intimately known by our Father. And what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 8 is this the reality of the Holy Spirit that has come into our life that we might be able to embrace both these identities as, as soldiers or as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ that are battling sin in this world, yet at the same time knowing that we are dearly loved and intimately known by our Heavenly Father. And in fact, it is this, this identity of being God's children that gives us hope and gives us strength and gives us courage in order to fight the battle well against sin. And in this idea of fighting this battle, I want you to look at verse 13 and 14, which is where we kind of left off last week for those of you that were here. But in verse 13, right before the verses that I read just a little bit ago, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That the, one of the things that the Spirit is doing in our life, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you. You remember verse 9, also from the week before, that you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, which is to say that if you do belong to Christ, you do have the Spirit. And if the Spirit is in you, one of the marks of the Spirit-filled life is that he is going to be putting sin to death in your life. That Jesus came and he died to pay the penalty for our sin and we are not justified by our works or by our actions but now we are positionally secure in Christ because the blood has been shed, the penalty has been paid. Jesus Christ died the death that we deserve to die in our place. He was our sacrifice but also our substitute on that cross. But not only has our sin been paid for but as the, as the, as the presence of sin still exists in this life, the Holy Spirit now comes to us because of the shed blood of Christ, to help us overcome. And what he's going to do is he's going to be putting to death the deeds of the body. This is the battle that I'm referring to. This is the battle that we're in. And it's actually a far more serious battle than any bullets that might be flying around on a battlefield or in a war like there was in World War II. This battle is against sin and death, and the battle is real, and the battle is eternal. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, live. In verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And what is the leading? What is the specific leading of the Spirit that Paul has in mind as he writes that? I believe it's the fact that the Spirit is going to be leading us to put to death the deeds of the body, that we are in this battle. But, but again, this is so beautiful, and it's so it's so gospel, and it's so good news, and it's just so awesome. Man, I'm telling you, as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have got the greatest hope in all the world, amen? Absolutely, we have got the greatest news. It's almost as if the gospel means good news, because the gospel does mean good news. Um, we have really good news. You know, we don't have to pretend, you know that, right? We don't have to pretend like we have good news. We really have good news. And that good news is that while, yes, we're fighting a battle and it's difficult at times, that never for one second, if we have placed simple childlike faith and trust in Jesus Christ, never for one millisecond are we not the Father's children. 
that we belong to him. And so Paul meshes together these two identities, one of a soldier or, or being in a battle as disciples of Jesus Christ, but the other as sons. And so again, just pick up the flow of thought that the Spirit wants to be killing sin in our life. And yet he rolls into verse 14, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear again. Is fear ruling your life this morning? Is fear ruling your life? It is not God's will for fear to rule your life. Jesus died to pay for the sins of our past, present, and future. He's with us now in spirit, and our future is secure in Christ. We're going to see that. But he's not called us to live in fear. He says, but, he contrasts this not spirit of fear with, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I want to talk a little bit about this cry. This cry is, is very important. This idea of crying out for our Father is very, is very central to the Christian life. It's a very strong word, the actual word. Um, kratso is the Greek word for cry in the Greek, which was originally written in. And it's, it's somewhat of a violent kind of kind of forceful term. Um, it's used around 50 times, if I remember correctly, in the New Testament, and almost every single time it's used, it's used in the context of not just, I'm crying out kind of weakly here with my little voice, this is my cry, but it's, it's, it's help! He's not saying, Abba, Father, it's Abba, Father! This is the, the crazo, the cry that the Spirit is going to produce in the exact same people that are battling sin. And this is necessary, amen? How else do you fight a battle other than with a cry at the same time? And so yes, while the, the Spirit wants to be crucifying sin in our life, He is also crying out from us that we are children of God. Um... When a child is born, one of the first things they'll usually do is they kind of bring them out into the world is they're listening for a cry. And if the cry is not there, they'll kind of hold them up and maybe paddle their little bottom. Why? Because they want them to cry. Why do they want them to cry? Because the cry is the sign of life. The cry is the sign that they're breathing, that they are alive. And this, this cry in us, this is like at the foundation, at the center, at the very bottom of the Christian life. The Christian life is not just academic. It's not just intellectual. Hear me, we're never to turn off our brains. We're never to not be discerning. But it's not just that. It's not just all classroom work and studying. There is a cry at the center of the Christian life produced by the Spirit in God's people that is a mark of our, of our wanting to be with Him. Um, many times when this word is used at other places uh, in the Gospels, it, would, it, was, it, was this kratzo, it was the same word that was used of the demons coming that would be in people and would, they would cry out before Jesus in one of the kind of great ironies that Mark sets up in Mark's gospel is that throughout 
Mark's gospel, everybody's asking, who is this? Who is this? Who is this guy, Jesus? Who is he? And everybody, you know, some people don't know, and, and others think he's one thing, and other things, people think he's a prophet, some think he's the Messiah, but there's this great controversy. But, but one of the things that, that's kind of ironic about it is that the demons know who he is. The demons know he's the son of God, and they always come up, and they come running, and they cry out. And, and the point being is that in the midst of kind of this, um, this, this, this question of who he is, the demons actually come and in crying out, they point to what the reality really is. As they cry out and they say, what have you to do with us, Jesus, the Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They know what their end is. They know where it's going. And in crying out, it pointed everybody that was watching around him to the reality that there's something different about this Jesus. He really is the Son of God. And in the same way, when we cry out, it is evidence to a watching world that we don't belong to this world, but we belong to our Heavenly Father who is in heaven. This, this, this is probably happening, maybe, I hope not, but it's probably happening right now up there in the nursery. There are kids that are with caregivers, and trust me, they're being taken well care of, but, but many times it's, you know, you've got that little thing as parents, you've probably been through this, every parent goes through it, where, where you kind of hand them off to the nursery and the kid's still crying for who? They're crying for their mother. They're crying for their father. Why? Because those two individuals alone are their parents, not somebody else. And while they might be in the arms of another, they want to be with their parent. And moms, don't feel bad. Your kids are safe right now. Don't get up and go get them. I'm sure they're... Fine, being taken care of. But I'm just, but I'm just saying, it, it points to the, it point, the, the cry points to the reality of who they belong to, you see. And, and there's this, this, this cry in us that is important that I really want us to get, and, and I want each one of you to just to examine your own life, and I want us to examine ourselves as a church. Because this, this cry, is, is, it's not just optional. It's absolutely necessary, and the Spirit will produce it in our life if we belong to God. Yet at the same time, I think that sometimes we tend to quench the cry because we think that everything's just intellectual and academic. And again, we don't have to turn off our minds at any time, but I don't want us to quench the cry that is within us. Um, do you guys know, I'm not sure how this illustration is going to land, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, do you guys know who the liver king is? Anybody? Okay, it's probably, this is probably going to work with like five of you, but I'm going to use it anyway. The liver king was the, is this guy that's become popular on social media over the last couple years, YouTube and stuff like that. <laughs> and I mean, he's just like super muscular, jacked, six pack, I mean, just, just ripped. And, uh, and, he, and his kind of thing was he, he would try to promote this primal way of living. And allegedly, he would like, like, there's pictures of him, you know, with his shirt off, his big old beard, and he'd have like a big piece of meat, like over his shoulder, and he supposedly just like ate raw meat, and you know, he's like, I don't know what the other primal tenants were that he said, but like, you eat meat, I know that, and liver in particularly, and you get a lot of sunshine, and you just walk around in the woods and lift heavy things, and that's good, I guess, I don't know. Um, but he had these, he's had these primal tenants that we live by. Well, he, <laughs> so ironically, a couple months ago, it came out, scandal of scandals, that Liver King wasn't actually living by his like seven primal tenants or whatever, but in reality, he was spending ten to $15,000 a month on anabolic steroids. 
Yeah, true, true, true story. So he was taking a serious stack of pharmaceuticals, and so it wasn't it wasn't the prime of living that 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 made him that way. It was it was these other things. And again, you're like, where's he going with this? Well, let me try to make a point here. Um, the point is is that I feel like sometimes in the church we we say that kind of our primal cry, our primal hope, is that it's God alone and crying out to our Father alone, but many times what we're actually doing is living on the man-made pharmaceuticals of self-help and church growth and self-discipline and leadership principles and different things like that. And while it may kind of work for a while on one level, I feel like eventually every Christian in every church gets exposed for what it really is, kind of like the liver king. And the reality is, either at the center of your life is a cry for your heavenly father, or there's something else. There's something just man-made. Um, C.S. Lewis said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We were made for another world. That's why we're not satisfied here. If I can just, if I can just sit in this idea of, of crying out to God some more a little while longer, because this is the central thing I want us to get this morning, is there has also been... Um, Interestingly enough, a lot of research done, I'm sure many of you have heard some of this, over the last couple decades um, regarding the brain development uh, of children and, and infants as they're born. Um, and much of the research is now saying that the brain development of infants, as well as their social, emotional, and cognitive development, depends on a loving bond or attachment relationship with a primary caregiver and, in best case scenario, a parent early on when they're born. And, and they say that there is increasing evidence from the fields of developmental psychology and neurobiology that neglect or parental inconsistency and a lack of love can lead to long-term mental health problems as well as reduced overall potential and happiness. Here's the point is that what they're saying is that even like science is finding that like there's this importance, this great importance to when a child cries that the parent responds and comes to them and that that really is the foundation of all other development in the child's life. And again, I say that because you see the same idea, I think, in our relationship with God that when you get saved, brother and sister, it doesn't mean things are going to get easy. It means the Spirit's going to start killing sin in your life. It means that you might suffer like Jesus. We're going to talk about suffering here because the text mentions it. But what, what happens is the Spirit also cries out of us and we cry for our Father and the Father wants us to cry to Him because He wants to show up. And He wants to show Himself strong. And when we cry, He wants to answer so that we can know that he's dependable. And, and, that, and that relationship, that cry and his response to us, the cry of his children and the father's response to his children, that is at the foundation of the Christian life. Amen? 
This is everything. And so don't be surprised when the Spirit or circumstances by the Spirit work in your life in such a way that you have to cry out to Him. It's a good thing. Why? Because your Father is wanting to answer. Your Father is wanting to show care to you, and He wants to run to you, and He wants to be with you. This is how it is for us. And if it's for us this way, we should not not be surprised by it because this is how it was for Jesus. In fact, this little phrase, Abba, Father, in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I believe it's other gospel writers write that he was praying so intensely that his sweat became like drops of blood. It says in, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus prays and he says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he prayed this. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, in the midst of Jesus' suffering, in the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of him literally going to the cross to crucify not his own sin, but the sin of the world, he cries out for his heavenly Father. This is how we fight the battle. We fight it like Jesus, by crying out. And if this was at the foundation of Jesus' relationship with the Father, how much more must it be at the foundation of our relationship with the Father? That we take time to cultivate this this cry in us because because suffering is absolutely a necessity in the Christian life. In in Hebrews 5-7, again, the writer of Hebrews describing Jesus, it says, in the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, listen, with loud cries and tears. The sinless Son of God lived this life in this sinful world with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. If the sinless Son of God had to live this life with loud cries and tears, I don't know what makes us think that we're going to be able to get through this battle without loud cries and tears as well. Are you with me? This is how we fight the battle. We fight it like Jesus. And see, in this whole context here, if you, if you just zoom out, th- th- this idea of the spirit-filled life and all that he's wanting to produce and, and that there's no condemnation and giving us life and causing us to love and changing the way we think, as we talked about last week, and, and, and giving us assurance that he's with us, that he came to dwell with us, and of killing sin in, in our life. The, the idea of the leading of the spirit here that, that Paul has in view does not so much refer to like some sort of mystical elements of divine guidance, but rather to the moral, char- the moral character of Christian behavior. Is that he's molding us and shaping us into the image of the Son, and one of the things that the Son did is the Son was not ashamed to cry out. Jesus would get up early in the morning, it says in the Gospels, and he would seek out solitary places so that he could pray. Now, he didn't have social media. He didn't have his phone ringing at all times of day or whatever, but he still, he had to make an intentional effort to get away to solitary places to pray with the Father. And sometimes we're like, well, it's hard to get away. My my mind just wanders. You know, there's always noise. I know. You have to seek out solitary places to be away with the Father and to cry out to him just like Jesus did. Now hear me. In pressing this this idea that the cry is loud, again, the the very word, uh, kratzo, that it's this idea of of like shrieking or crying out and that Jesus lived his life with, with, with loud cries. Hear me, the, the volume of the cry 
does not increase the effectiveness of the petition, but the volume of the cry is the inevitable fruit of fighting sin in the power of the Spirit. Do you hear me? Let me say that again. The volume of the cry does not increase the effectiveness of the petition. In other words, God doesn't hear me when I pray like this. But God will hear me if I pray like this. No, that's not it. But the point is, is that the volume, the loudness of the cry, the intensity with which we cry out, is going to be the inevitable fruit or result of fighting sin in the power of the Spirit. Is it, guys, it's, it's a real battle, you see. It's an invisible one, but it's real. And we have to fight. We've got we've to swing our swords. And, and I think that many times where the disconnect comes for us, and, and even I think many times from a watching world, is that we say that we're in the midst of the battle. And, then, and, if, and if you could just describe like our attitude or our mindset or our demeanor to the way in which we dress. Uh, hear me here. It's, it's like our attitude isn't one of being scarred and bloodied and dirty and sweaty. Our attitude is more one of being dressed in our Sunday best, acting like we've just come from the battlefield. And again, I'm, hear me, I'm not talking about how we actually dress outwardly. I'm saying like in regards to our attitude, the, what, what kind of mindset do we clothe ourselves with? That it's not just all going to be sterile and pristine. Is that there's real battles that, that we have to fight and we have to cry out. And don't, and don't miss this here because there's a, there's a blessing in this, again, in, in talking about how this cry was something that marked the life of Jesus Again, where he cried out in the garden, Abba, Father. And as Paul says here, that the Spirit's going to cry out in, in, from us, Abba, Father. Is that as a Christian saved by grace, we are able to participate. Think about this. As a Christian saved by grace, we are able to participate in the same communion with the Father that Jesus had. That's why when Jesus, you know, in the upper room discourse, he, he'd talk about like, it's my God and your God. Like, no longer do you have to come to me, but you can go to the Father in my name. Jesus came to give us access to the Father, and the Father sent the Son to give us access to him. That we might, that we might be with him. Now, th- this idea of suffering, again, let me just point it out in the text. So you've got, again, in verse 13, we're putting sin to death, and any sort of death is painful. That's one kind of whisper of the idea of suffering in it. But if you'll just jump down here to verse 17, he says, and if children, heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. And again, we'll we'll talk in a little bit here about children and heirs and and all that, and inheritance and all that that means. But I just want to point out here that he mentions suffering specifically. And you might think that after mentioning being an heir, he, he might jump to something else, not suffering. But this is part of being an heir, is that, we, is that we suffer with him. That suffering is the means by which we go to get our inheritance. We're not earning our inheritance. It's all of grace, but suffering is the means, the road that we walk in order to go get it. Um, John Newton described it like this. He, did, he, he described it as a man who had received a large inheritance and lived in the country but had to go to the city in order to receive his inheritance. And along the way, and this was back in the day before cars and stuff, but like along the way his carriage broke down and so he had to walk the rest of the way, which, a fairly long distance, to get to the city to receive his inheritance. And he talked about how, it, you know, how foolish it would have been for that man 
to complain about his carriage breaking down and having to go walk the rest of the way to the city to get his inheritance. Why would it have been foolish to complain? Because he was on his way to get an inheritance. A very large inheritance, a glorious inheritance. In the same way, in this life, we walk at times a road of suffering that is difficult. But brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, we are on our way to get what is ours. And it is ours because of Christ. Look at the amazing nature, this idea of, of being heirs and of children. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then he runs with this for a second. He says, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Okay, so, you know, we all, if we're really honest, we probably all wouldn't mind if we had that distant rich uncle that died and left us a nice inheritance, okay? Let's just be honest about it. We'd take it, okay? We're not talking about a rich uncle here. We're talking about God, the maker of heaven and earth, to whom belongs everything. And if that wasn't enough, not only are we heirs of God, get this one, we are fellow heirs, or depending on your English translation, joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. Everything that is Christ's is ours. Let that sink in. Everything that is Christ's is ours. Ephesians chapter 1, he has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and in love. He predestined us for adoption as his sons through Christ Jesus. Again, the idea of adoption. And, and so guys, our, our, like we're, we're secure in the present, and I want to talk more about that here in just a second, but our inheritance for the future, it is certain, yes, it is marked with a road to suffering in order to get it one day, but that's okay. Because Jesus is going to see us through. And the whole way along that road, the whole way along that road marked with suffering, we can have an absolute assurance that Christ is with us. Because notice what else the Spirit does here. There's kind of two directions that the Spirit is working. One, we've already talked about, the Spirit cries up. He cries out, Abba, Father. And again, the, the heart of the cry isn't just for, even for what the Father can do, but for the Father's presence himself. So the Spirit cries out and up to the Father, but the Spirit also cries or testifies or bears witness with our spirit. He also bears witness inwardly. So the Spirit cries up to the Father, but he also cries from the Father to us that we are God's children. Is it as we cry out to the Father, like I said earlier, it's, it's kind of a mark to a watching world of another reality that we belong to this other family. Just like the child crying in the nursery, nursery for their mother or father points to the reality that the person that's holding them is not their mother or father. But in the same way, it is also a proof to us that we are children of God. Many people, let me just try to make this as practical and as straightforward as I can. Many people, even if they've trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, they still struggle with subjective assurance that they actually belong to God, that they are actually safe. That they are actually his and that he's not going to leave them, that he's going to see them all the way through to the end. Many people very much struggle with that. 
And many times as a pastor, if I can just be honest, one of the conversations I'll get into with people is if they don't come out and say this, and I understand why they do it. I think we've all wrestled with this at times as to whether or not we're truly saved. Does God still truly love us? Because as Christians, we can still truly sin. And so we question whether or not his patience is going to remain for us. But one of the things that happens a lot of times as, as a pastor is people come in and they're struggling with this idea of their assurance in Christ, and they'll, and they'll try to get me as a pastor. Here's what they do. They, don't, they might not say it directly, but they'll try to get me as a pastor to tell them whether or not they're, they're saved. And it's okay. I mean, I think it's okay. We, we, we do it, but I can't ultimately do that. The point is here in, in, the, in the text, it is the Spirit that gives assurance. Now, I want to make sure we're on the same page here. I believe that there is no such thing as a Christian, a true Christian, who is not secure. Every Christian is secure in Christ. But when I talk about assurance, I'm talking about the conscious confidence that that security is real. That we're going to make it through to the end. That even if we stumble and fall, that sin has already been paid for. The Holy Spirit is not going to leave us or forsake us. And he's going to convict us, pull us back up, and bring us through to the end. All the way to the city where we, to where we receive our inheritance. This is, and, and again, he ties this in with this idea of adoption. And this is something that I've, I've shared this before. And I know it's true not only for Hannah and I, but for many of you. But our youngest son, our youngest of four boys, is adopted. And so this, this, this imagery here is very real um, and impactful to me, is that one of the things that m- not just little Jordy, but many kids struggle with when they're adopted is, 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 this, is this it? Is this my final landing spot? Because like in little Jordy's case, he, he'd been, in, like we told hey, you're part of our family now, buddy. You're, you're part of our home. Well, he'd been in several homes. And it hadn't worked out. And so can he trust us? Can he believe that he's not going anywhere? And brothers and sisters, I so want you to hear me, and, and please, don't just hear me. I'm, I'm, you decide or not from the text. But I'm telling you, this is what Paul is pushing. He wants us, he's saying the Spirit wants to let you know that you're not going anywhere. And so, you know, we try to explain it to him in a lot of different ways. You know, like up until this point in the book of Romans, um, much of the language that has been used, and for those of you that have been walking through Romans with us here this year, like much of the language that has been used has been legal language, specifically the word justification. It's a legal term of a judge, the gavel comes down and declares somebody not guilty and, and innocent. It's a declaration. It's a, it's a legal term. And that's true and that's needed. But here, here's the thing. It's not, now Paul is transitioning in some of his language here, especially in Romans 8, not just from legal terminology, but to relational terminology. And both are true. Okay, now hang with me here. Is that there was a day, and I think I've showed you guys pictures before and used this in kind of a slightly different illustration at different times, but there was a day April 18th of 2019, where we stood before a judge, we signed a piece of paper, she even had Jordy sign the little piece of paper, that legally says that he is ours forever, that he belongs to Hannah and I. 
But when we can tell that Jordy is struggling with whether or not we're really going to love him forever, what I don't do is I don't go and get that piece of paper, although maybe as he gets older, maybe this would be helpful, I don't know. But like, I don't go get that piece of paper and go, see, right here it is. You're mine. That's not what I do. What do I do? I give him a hug. I hold him. I say, I look him in the eye and I say, I love you. And you're mine forever. You understand? Now, both are true, but understand this, is that the legal aspects of our adoption serve to facilitate the relational aspects of adoption. The justification, yes, it's legally true. He wants us to get that. In fact, if I just went and got some kid and had him living in my house, and even though my heart would be good, if I didn't have the legal foundation to make him my child, I would be not a loving parent that adopts kids, but a kidnapper, right? So the legalities are absolutely necessary, but the whole point of the legal aspect of it is to facilitate the relational aspect of it where he lives in my house forever he is my son. Nothing can change that. And I'm telling you what Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us to remind us again and again and again that you belong to the Father. This is unbelievably good news. You see, the, the Spirit wants to lead us into assurance that we will be with him forever, even when the battle rages and even when we get wounded, even when we fall, even when sin takes us down. As we just sang, what is our hope? It's not I. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory that's going to see us all the way through to the end. Amen? You follow me? This is such good news. And the Spirit wants to cultivate this in us, this idea of assurance that we might, that we might always be his. If you guys are getting baptized, you can go. I'm going to continue to talk for a little bit while you go, while you go get changed. We're going to baptize some folks here in a few minutes. But as they're, as they're getting ready, and as we get ready to put them under the water here in just a little bit, I want to ask you this morning, you, 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 not somebody else beside you, in front of you, behind you. But do you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? There's not Christians and then some other group of Christians that have the Spirit. Every Christian has the Spirit of God. I'm asking you, are you a Christian? You're not a Christian just because your mama was a Christian. You're not a Christian just because your daddy was a Christian. You're not a Christian just because you've gone to church for as long as you can remember. You are a Christian only if you have been born again by the Spirit of God. It means that you've stopped looking to self. It means that you've stopped looking to the way you were raised. You st you've stopped looking to your own merit. You've stopped working, looking to your own works. You've stopped looking to your own denomination, as if belonging to a denomination could somehow make you a Christian. You've forsaken all those things and all other worldly things, and you have thrown yourself wholly, fully. You've cried out for God to save you because you believe that your only hope is Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago bloodied, hanging on a cross, bearing the wrath of God in our place. 
the wrath that we deserve, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that God took all of the punishment that we deserve and he laid it upon Jesus. And he went into the grave, but on the third day he rose again. You are a Christian only by believing that by faith. And not just believing that it's true, but believing and knowing that you need it to be true for you. That there is no other name in heaven and on earth by which men can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing else that we can do to receive him other than that. But if that is the case, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then I'm telling you, the Spirit lives in you, and if the Spirit lives in you, he wants to crucify sin in your body. You can't do it in your own strength, but by his strength alone. And he's going to do that by causing you to cry out, so don't quench it. He's going to do that by reminding you of the glorious inheritance that is yours. And he's going to do it by, even at times, orchestrating situations in your life that are difficult. But he did the same thing in the life of Jesus. And God had glorious purposes in all of it. Not one ounce, not one millisecond, if you're a Christian, not one millisecond of your suffering is wasted, brother or sister. It's not. We're going to get to it here. I don't want to steal my own thunder later in the chapter, but God is working all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I guess, just by way of application, I'll close and hopefully they're behind that curtain. If not, we'll wait some more. But I just want to, I guess if I could, just give you permission. Not that you need it. But maybe just one person in your life to give you permission. I want to give you permission to cry out. If you feel like you need to cry out, maybe right now in this moment, but maybe just in life in general, if you feel like everything's just kind of up in your head, but you feel distant from God, I want to give you permission, but also encourage you and exhort you as your brother in Christ. Brother, sister, this, this is part of the Christian life, and it's not just a kind of secondary part of it. It is central. It's at the foundation. It's how we grow in every other way. Is that while we might try to grow in other ways, if we don't have a cry, for our Heavenly Father at the heart of it, then there's going to be some inconsistencies. So cry out to Him. He hears you. And He stands ready to answer. Amen? Let's pray with me. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. I thank you for those that are getting baptized. Lord, I pray that as we all have the privilege here this morning to be witnesses to it, I pray that the act itself would again be a, an, an image, a picture, as you intend it to be, to our souls of the good news of all that you've accomplished for us. That we literally, in Christ, we have a new life. We died and were raised with him. In Christ, all of our sins were washed away, not just some. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that your Holy Spirit wants to saturate, wants to soak, drench 
every ounce of who we are. And as we go and walk through this life, just as they'll be in a little bit over there by that tank, that, that there will be footprints. The residue of your presence in our life as we walk this life and path even of suffering at times um, on the road to glory. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to sing to you. Thank you that we get to worship our way through a passage of scripture. And thank you that we get to worship you now with this with this ordinance of baptism that you have commanded for your people to follow. In Christ's name I pray, amen.